I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health, fitness, and well-being space to bring in the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. The show is brought to you by my company, Body Shop Performance. We create total solutions to optimize your health by focusing on sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. We work with busy professionals on a one-to-one basis for six or 12 months using the latest science and technology. And Body Shop also work with businesses who want to create a culture of energy, vitality and performance and position well-being as a competitive advantage. Find out more at bodyshopperformance.com and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm Leanne Spencer, your host, and hope you're well. Hope you've had a good week. I'm following up this week with a solo episode based a little bit on something I recorded for the Insights episodes a couple of weeks ago. I talked about my mystery sickness. I talked a bit about burnout. Now, that's a subject that I've written about in my best-selling book, Rise and Shine, Recover from Burnout and Get Back to Your Best. It's a topic I talk a lot about within corporates. And, and of course, in many aspects of my professional life, burnout comes up as a subject. And closely linked to that is the subject of resilience. It's a word that's used a lot at the moment. You know, what is your resilience? How can we be more resilient? How can we get more resilience within the workforce? And I thought it was worth focusing on that for one episode and really talking about what resilience is and how you can develop better resilience. I'm not even sure all that said that I'm particularly keen on the word resilient. The word itself, I have no issue with, but I think it's become a little bit hackneyed There is some concern, I think, as to what degree is your resilience down to you and in the context of the workplace, you know, down to the environment that's created by your employer. But taking a step back from that, I think resilience could also be defined as personal sustainability. You know, to what degree have you got the tools that enable you to to cope with the pressures of daily life, the rigors of daily life, if you like? Here are some official definitions of the word resilience. It is the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties or toughness. That's one official definition. The other is the ability of a substance or object to spring back into shape or elasticity. So they're two of the official definitions in the different contexts of the word resilience. For myself, I would define it as the ability to recover from stresses and challenges, both anticipated and unanticipated. But fundamentally, for me, it's your fitness for the rigors of daily life. That's how I would really describe it. And I want to talk about in this episode, the various different things you can do to try and develop that ability to recover from stresses and challenges, to develop that fitness for the rigors of daily life and to be, if you like, a resilient human being. It's not directly relevant to this episode, but I do want to mention that I'm in halfway through a brilliant book at the moment by Johan Hari called Lost Connections. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but it actually talks about the causes of depression and anxiety. But the course has a very close correlation between those two things and resilience. It's really worth having a look at or having a read of this book or listening to it if you do audiobooks. As I say, I'm only halfway through, but the main crux of his argument is that depression and anxiety and, and all the things that can affect our resilience are, to a very small degree, relatively speaking, actually caused by a defect or an issue within the brain, for example, or even from genetic factors and genetic causes. But actually, what causes a lack of resilience and depression and anxiety in society now 
is that we become incredibly disconnected from things that are really important. Hari's actually identified nine causes of depression and anxiety, and it's worth mentioning these. Number one, or cause number one, a disconnection from meaningful work. So he's saying that some of the work that we do now is so devoid of meaning that it is simply driving us into a depressive state. And if you consider, and this isn't just work either at the lower level, so the factory packing or the call center type of work, but actually higher up the chain as well, where people are just incredibly bored. Their work has no meaning for them. That was certainly the case for me. I mean, I, I had a good job if you want to measure by status and, and salary and so on. But the work entirely lacked meaning for me. I would spend all my days looking at the little clock in the bottom right-hand corner of my screen, wishing the day away, the week away, the month away. And my meaning was entirely without purpose. My meaning, my work was entirely without meaning or purpose. So I completely identify with that one. That is cause number one, a disconnection from meaningful work. Cause number two, a disconnection from other people. So literally becoming disconnected from people in terms of the community is one of his main points. But also in, in every sense, you know, we become insular and isolated. Cause number three, a disconnection from meaningful values, from things that are really important to you. And I definitely relate to that one as well in, in my time of my journey. Cause number four, disconnection from childhood trauma. On the face of it, you would think that that would not be a bad thing to be disconnected from childhood trauma. But in actual fact, when you, you start to read through the book, you can see how that would really impact in terms of depression and anxiety. His main point here is that we become so disconnected from what's happened to us. We are ignoring, if you like, the fire that's within us. And what we're doing is, is trying to eradicate the smoke, which could be the depression and anxiety, by ignoring what has actually caused the fire, caused that smoke to happen, which is the fire inside us, which could be the childhood trauma. So that was cause number four. Cause number five is a disconnection from status and respect. Disconnection from the natural world is cause number six. Disconnection from a hopeful or secure future is cause number seven. And causes eight and nine are the real roles of genes and brain changes. So it's a really interesting book. And when we come to talk about resilience, all of those things, disconnection from nature, from childhood trauma, from meaningful work and so on, all affect our resilience, our ability to, to withstand pressures and to bounce back from them. And I think another little slant on the definition of resilience is how quickly you can recover as well. It's a little bit like physical fitness. You know, our physical fitness could be very much defined as how quickly we can bounce back from an exercise session and recover. And I think our resilience can be measured in similar ways. How quickly can you bounce back from a stressful event or some form of trauma? I think that's very much an aspect of resilience as well. And resilience, you can look at in four different ways. Our mental resilience physical resilience, emotional resilience, spiritual resilience, if you like. I'm not a particularly spiritual person, but I do. There are certain elements of spirituality which I'm interested in and, and tapped into. So how do I focus on or, or develop my resilience? Looking at the physical aspect of it first, I think the foundations for a resilient individual are built in terms of, of how you, you look after yourself and your physical body. So we'll start there. And I think sleep is the obvious place to start. You know, sleep is what I call the force multiplier, as you will have heard before if you listen regularly. And what I mean by that is when you've got a good foundation of sleep behind you, it's easier to go out and do the things that you want to do or need to do to stay resilient. A few pointers on sleep. We now know it is extremely important for physical health. I think we've probably always known that, but 
A lack of sleep has become normalized. Getting less sleep is becoming normalized. There was some data that was gathered around the time of the Second World War, which found that we were getting approximately 7.9 hours of sleep a night. A recent National Sleep Survey discovered that we're getting on average 6.49 hours of sleep a night. So we're literally losing out on about an hour and a half a night, which is massive. You know, that is literally losing a night's sleep a week. So we're getting less and less sleep. And I think we need to readdress that. In fact, the government is about to release some guidelines on the amount of sleep we should be getting. But intuitively, most of us know that when we wake up after a seven or eight hour sleep, we feel a lot better than we do after a six hour sleep. If you think you can get away with not a great deal of sleep a night, you're probably kidding yourself. You're probably under the effect of adrenaline or cortisol. Now, I've quoted this many times on the show and in various content that we produce, but Matthew Walker's brilliant book, Why We Sleep, quotes a couple of very interesting and quite frightening statistics. In the first, he says that if you were to round up or down to the nearest percentage, the people who genuinely do thrive on six hours or less sleep a night on a consistent basis, you would be rounding it to zero. So you'd have to round it down to the nearest percentage of zero. So 99.9999999% of us need between seven and eight hours of sleep a night. That is a fact. Most of us are getting significantly less than that, I believe, based on my anecdotal conversations and, of course, the National Sleep Survey data that I've just quoted. So we need to be getting more sleep. My rule is very simple. My sleep has to start with a seven. So last night, I think it was about seven and a half hours. That's fine. Even if it's seven hours and a minute, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to feel all right. If it's seven hours and 59 minutes, all the better. If it could be eight hours, something fantastic. But as long as it starts with a seven, that's a pretty good rule of thumb for me. And in order to get that, I will create a sleep window of about eight hours. So I've got the opportunity to take a little while to fall asleep and maybe a wake up or two, which is not ideal, but can happen. And that way, eight hour sleep window means I get seven hours of actual sleep. And in order to do that, I have something, a metaphorical concept that I follow every evening called the sleep staircase. Now, this is a set of metaphorical steps, literal steps as well, that I will take from getting in from work, for example, to actually putting my head on the pillow that mean that I'm in the best possible position to get a good night's sleep. So for me, it is changing into casual clothes. Depending whether it's what season we're in, I'll put my blue light blocking glasses on. Uh, I will then do a to-do list to capture everything that didn't get done today that I can launch straight into in the morning. That helps me to sort of unpack the mind a bit. We'll eat a meal as early as possible. So ideally three to four hours before bedtime, take the dog out for a a quick walk, settle down to watch something that's been pre-planned on TV or maybe do some reading. I might jump in the sauna and then teeth, quick read and bed. So it's not a complex set of steps, but it gets me in the right headspace for sleep. And I know that sleep is absolutely crucial for keeping me fit for the rigors of daily life, for keeping me resilient. So I'm very, very strict on my sleep routine. I'm very strict on how often I'll go out in the evening. And I know that that's, you know, you don't always have control over that if, if your work requires you to be out networking or having dinners, but try and make those as early as possible. Try and get home a little sooner if that's your lifestyle. And just look at your social calendar. Another thing I've observed is that we're incredibly overscheduled. Our kids are overscheduled, we're overscheduled. I made a real effort a few years ago to look at that and just raise out anything that I don't particularly want to go to or just don't want to be out two nights in a row. I used to do a lot of going out and now I'm very clear that I don't particularly enjoy going out in the evening. So, and that helps to get a good night's sleep because when you're home, you can go through that staircase routine and you can start to relax a couple of hours before bedtime so that when your head hits the pillow, you're in that really sleepy state. So sleep is absolutely crucial. 
Other things you can do to help with that as well is just be mindful of what dictates a circadian rhythm. And it's having a consistent wait time. It's getting lots of exposure to natural light during the day and lots of daily life movement or low level movement throughout the day. All of that can help set a really healthy circadian rhythm, which is essentially your sleep pattern. And then when you get to the end of the day, whatever time the sun would have gone in, that's the time if you're indoors that you want to put your blue light blocking glasses on. And I'm going to put a link to those in the show notes. We partner with a company called True Dark who makes some really good quality sets of glasses, lots of different styles, and they're now quite subtle. Blue light blocking glasses weren't always so. So, well, important for circadian rhythm that you also put those on, certainly by early evening, so that you can block out the harmful frequency of light called blue light, which suppresses melatonin, which is the hormone that signals that the body should get ready for sleep. And junk light... So lighting on your tablets, your smartphones, but also overhead lighting in almost every house or office contains that frequency of light. So it's essentially telling the brain we're still awake, it's still daytime. And that is not what you want to be doing in the, the last few hours of your day. So that's sleep. I think that is a fundamental one. If you're looking to develop better resilience or maintain good resilience, sleep has got to be your, your first thought. Then we come to mental health. Now, Lots of different ways you can look after your mental health. I, again, refer you back to the Lost Connections book because he really talks there about how you can maintain good mental health, not just avoiding the things that can cause depression and anxiety, which obviously have a serious impact on our resilience, but things that you can do positively, reconnecting to other people, reconnecting to meaningful work, reconnecting to meaningful values, acknowledging childhood trauma, all these kind of things. On a more day-to-day basis, something I found very, very effective and is quite popular at the moment as well for maintaining good mental health and balance is meditation. And meditation is probably, combined with breath work, the most powerful way that you can alter your physiology. So I simply do 10 minutes a day and I, I'd combine that by, I use my Oura Ring app called Moment, which if you've got an Oura Ring, check out that app, it's really cool. And I breathe deeply, exhale for 10 minutes, and in that time, I'm trying to get my mind into a meditative state. Really what that means is just allowing thoughts to come and go because you're never going to stop them coming, but just acknowledge them, push them on. So you don't allow yourself to get dragged into a thought. How am I going to get there? What train will I get? Oh, what should I do about this? What am I going to do next week? Where should I go on holiday? All those sort they come, they go, they come, they go. And that is essentially in a, getting yourself into a meditative state. You can do it for longer than 10 minutes, shorter than 10 minutes. While you're trying to build the habit, I suggest just doing whatever you can do on a consistent basis. If that's five minutes a day, great, go with that. If you can do longer, then go for longer. Meditation is a key one for mental health, but the fundamentals of what we were designed to do, I think, are also really important for mental health. So movement, moving in a sort of lots of low level movement throughout the day, but also taking your heart rate up a little bit. Now, this depends on where your current state is. If you are extremely strung out, extremely stressed, feeling burnt out, then high intensity movement is absolutely not for you. But what you will get a lot of benefit from mentally and physically, the two are intertwined, is from doing low level daily movement. So walking is a prime example of that. Now, if you could combine walking by forming some social connections, either a walking club or going with a friend or going with an animal, uh, taking a dog, for example, and getting out in nature, you're actually reestablishing several of the lost connections that Johan Hari is talking about in his book, which is exactly what I'm going to do today after I finish recording this. I'm going to take my my wife and my dog and we're going out to, a, to Kent to do a country walk. So 
whilst I don't feel depressed or anxious and I feel I'm fairly resilient at the moment, this is how I maintain that resilience by doing things like that on a regular basis. Now, there's a lot more it can be said about mental health, but meditation, movement, two absolutely crucial ones. Um, the third one would be looking at diet as well. What we eat is a profound impact on mood. So eating a diet that is personalized to you, as I've talked about before, so you're not getting causes of inflammation through poor food choices or excess sugar or caffeine or alcohol, for example, but also eating foods, for example, rich in tryptophan, which is a precursor to serotonin. The goat milk kefir I've talked about before would be a good example of that. But there are other things, turkey, for example, that contain tryptophan. And just eating as clean a diet as you can, 80% clean, eating the right amount of foods as well, so that physically you're not carrying an excess of body fat or not enough muscle, because as I'll come to talk about in a second, that can also impact your resilience if your body is unable to carry itself around in a healthy way. And the other thing I would add to mental health is making sure that you've got really strong social connections so that if you need to talk to someone about what's going on for you, you can do that. You've got a network of people around you. It might just be one person or a network of people around you who can help you when you have the inevitable challenges that we have in life. You're able to talk to somebody, to share the problem, to pick it apart. And I think that's fundamental. So having a good social network as well from a mental health perspective is going to be critical for your resilience. Now, it's, I think resilience can also be in part due to your ability to solve your own problems, but you do need to have a network of others, I think, to offset that independence. I think that's really critical. Talking a little bit about energy as well, because if your body is energized, your mind is energized, you know, you have good levels of energy and you're clear on how you can pace that energy, ration that energy out, that's going to be key for resilience. So some of the things that I focus on when it comes to energy is getting lots of access to natural light. It's one of the things I find really energizing. So we're going to spend the day out today in the sun, but also when I'm in the office, I'll get out and try and get onto the balcony and get access to natural light and come back in and I'll feel immediately energized. So that's one thing, exposure to natural light. Movement, of course, is incredibly energizing. So it's another thing I'll do to maintain good energy levels and stay resilient is make sure that I'm not sitting for prolonged periods of time, that I'm out and about, but I'm doing the right intensity and type of exercise as well and the right volume of it. So lots of daily life movement, lots of walking, usually an average of about 15,000 steps a day. Sometimes it's less. Yesterday, I just about scraped 10,000. Today, we'll probably hit 20. But on average, you know, I'm getting well above that sort of slightly arbitrary, but quite useful threshold of 10,000 steps a day. Interspersed with moderate intensity activity. So getting the heart rate up a little bit. That could be a brisk walk, a light jog, playing in the garden, kick about, that kind of thing. And then assuming that you're not very burnt out and your resilience isn't being massively tested at the moment, two to three times a week or one to four times a week, you're doing really high intensity exercise, possibly for just a handful of minutes, possibly longer. That's really taking your heart rate up to its maximum levels. But all of that kind of energy expenditure is incredibly energizing. So making sure that you're moving your body in the way it was designed to on a regular basis is going to provide you with a lot of energy. Now, the other thing, slightly more esoteric, that I find incredibly energizing is a concept called heartfulness. And for me, it's a term that we coined, and it means a couple of things. One, it's doing something that is totally for somebody else or for a bigger cause than you. And as I've spoken about before, for me, that's volunteering for diversity role models and also fundraising for the Alzheimer's Research Society, because my father-in-law has recently passed away, sadly, of Alzheimer's and some other conditions. So that's something that, that for the rest of our lives that we will fundraise towards that cause. 
diversity role models is volunteering. So I give my time once or twice a month. We go in and we do workshops with schools to combat the effects of homophobic, biphobic and transphobic bullying. And then the Alzheimer's research is where we actually do fundraising. So very recently we did the world's toughest ski race in March, which was for called the Arctic Circle Race. And that's 160 kilometers on cross-country skis, self-sufficient, camping overnight in Greenland in the Arctic on cross-country skis, as I say. So that was an extraordinarily difficult challenge. In terms of resilience, it was resilience building, but I did find my resilience wanting in times as well. It was a really interesting exercise in terms of how I plan and pace myself and how I handle these long-distance challenges. So that, that was an interesting experience, and it certainly has helped my resilience so that's heartfulness. What's well, one side of heartfulness? It's doing something that's entirely for for a bigger cause than you. The other side of heartfulness is doing something, reconnecting with some aspect of yourself that you used to enjoy, that you just haven't had the chance to do. You know, the pressures of work and home have squeezed out the time that you had for running, for reading, for theatre, for going down to the shed and pottering about, whatever it is, and you simply haven't got time to do that anymore. And it's just finding time, whether it's five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour, a week to go back and start doing that. The enjoyment you'll get from reconnecting with something you used to love and feeling like you're, you're a little bit back in control of life. It's not just a hamster wheel of work, home, sleep, work, home, sleep. It can be credibly energizing, just even if it is, as I say, five or 10 minutes a day, just to start regaining a bit of control over your day again. I've seen that happen to great effect and people get very energized as a result. If you're energized, you're going to have better resilience. It's as simple as that. So we've talked a bit about sleep. We've talked about mental health. We've talked about energy. There's another concept called getting into your discomfort zone, which I'm a huge fan of. I've just alluded to it with the Arctic Circle race, but I've done lots of things that take me massively into my discomfort zone. Arctic Circle race is probably the biggest. The other would be, I mean, even a marathon is incredibly uncomfortable for me. You know, I'm not a natural marathon runner. I've done four of them. It's still unfinished business for me. I've done a couple in fancy dress. They were fun. I did one with a client, so I ran her pace and that was great. That was my first marathon. Second one, I ran on my own and I went out far too quick, had a great first half and an awful second half. First half was one hour, 50 minutes. Second half was two hours and 40 minutes. So a shambles, an absolute shambles of a marathon. You know, anyone can go and run a first fast half. It's pacing that's crucial in a distance event like that. So I was unimpressed with my performance, but I've applied this year and I'll go again and I'll keep applying each year until I get a place. And then I'm going to run my best solo marathon, not in fancy dress and probably leave it at that for marathons. So it's unfinished business, but very uncomfortable. I try and push myself a bit every day as well with whatever I take on. You know, I won't say no to any speaking gig, even if it's got some new stuff in it. Always trying to push and take myself just out of that comfort zone a little bit every day and then in a big way every few months or every six months or in the case of the Arctic Circle, really big every couple of years, but that's in part because of the fundraising aspect. Because I believe that when you get yourself into your discomfort zone, you know, remarkable things happen. You demonstrate to yourself what you can achieve. You push past all your barriers. You defy what other people think you can achieve as well. And you develop enormous amounts of energy and strength from that. It's a well-known concept. You know, taking yourself out of your comfort zone often has really good effects for people. Now, again, you need to pick your moment. If you're chronically stressed, it might be the last thing you need. And it needs to be something that frightens you, but doesn't have you up at night. So it's enough to stretch you and keep you focused and serious about the goal, but not enough to tip you into an anxious state. And there's other things you can do as well to take yourself into your discomfort zone on a more daily basis. 
For example, we have a sauna. So I'll go into the sauna and sit there for 20 or 30 minutes, depending on time of day and the temperature, pretty much every single day, certainly five times a week. And it's often very uncomfortable in there. I'm desperate to get out. I'm watching the sun timer and the sand trickling through, waiting for the last grain to drop so I can push myself out of there. But that, again, is developing resilience, resilience to heat in a very literal sense, but also the mind saying, I want to get out of here, it's too hot. And the other side of the mind is saying, no, we're staying in, we're going to endure this. So that's very good for resilience. Cold as well. Take a cold shower. Force yourself to stay in there until you're shivering ideally for at least a couple of minutes. If you can do that on a fairly regular basis, you've developed great physical resilience there, but also mentally. Every, every part of your body wants to get out of that cold shower, but you're keeping yourself in there for a fixed period of time. That's resilience. It's physical resilience and it's, it's mental resilience as well. Exercise, putting yourself through exercise sessions, again, in the right state of mind, you know, not when you're too stressed out. And not that that's going to damage you or cause too much inflammation, but just pushing yourself into an exercise concept, going a little bit faster on a run for maybe half a mile uh, than you're, you're comfortable with, or lifting a slightly heavier weight, as long as you've got good form and you're in control, of course, or going a little bit further on a run, trying a new form of exercise as well. You know, that, that trying new stuff also develops resilience. All of this stuff will help to keep you fit for the rigors of daily life. And I'm a big fan of all of that stuff. So... Resilience really comes down to how much, to what degree, you're focusing on your sleep, on your mental health. What are you doing to keep your mind and body energized? Is there any spiritual kind of practice that you're doing? I also think it comes down to body composition. You know, if, you, if you're looking after yourself, it's very hard to be resilient if you're carrying an excess of, of body fat, for example, because that's going to be energy sapping and perhaps you know, it's going to affect your physical fitness, which of course is linked to resilience. Having the right amount of muscle mass as well, so you can carry yourself. You've got that strength, strength of presence and physical strength as well, which I think closely correlates with mental strength. What are you doing for, to take yourself into your discomfort zone on a reasonably frequent basis? But there are levels to that, of course. And how are you keeping yourself fit for the rigors of daily life as well, mentally fit and then fit in, in the broader sense that we've just been talking about here? All of that stuff is I think what makes a resilient human being. So to recap, you're focusing on your sleep, mental health, energy, your body composition, you're keeping yourself fit for the rigors of business and you're regularly taking yourself into your discomfort zone to challenge yourself and to build and maintain that high levels of resilience. And the book I've mentioned, Lost Connections, you know, connecting to purpose, connecting to other people, connecting to nature, connecting to your values, hugely important stuff for resilience. So I would definitely point you towards three books. I'm going to start with Lost Connections. I'm really enjoying this book by Johan Hari. If you're interested in sleep, Matthew Walker's Why We Sleep is well worth a read. And then my book, Rise and Shine, Recover from Burnout and Get Back to Your Best, also is going to give you everything you need to be strong and maintain or grow better resilience. All of that I will link to in the show notes. I also mentioned the True Dark Blue Light Blocking Glasses as part of the sleep piece, which I'll also link to in the show notes. And I hope that's been helpful. I want to thank you for listening if you got this far. If you think there's anyone who'd really benefit from hearing this, please share it with them. It's probably the highest compliment you can pay us is to share this episode with someone who needs to hear it. And of course, if you could jump onto iTunes and give us a, a rating and a review, we would massively appreciate that. And other than that, I will talk to you next week. I think we've got some interviews coming up for the next few Wednesday shows. Obviously, the Insights episode is every Saturday as well, where it's a 10-minute or less show bringing you an insight or a little bit of knowledge that we've found or gleaned or discovered recently. So thanks again for listening. Please like, share, rate and review, and I'll talk to you very soon. 
Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, www.bodyshotsperformance.com and click on Take the Test. It'll take you through to a short two to three minute test. And at the end of that, you'll get a scorecard and a free 39 page report based on our six signals, sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please think of someone who could really benefit from the content and hit that share button and send it across to them. And of course, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you very much for listening.